Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's Sustainability and You podcast, Stephanie Glover and I speak with Christopher Jackson, CEO of Proteum Green Solutions Limited, a UK green hydrogen energy services company. Chris originally began working on hydrogen through the World Bank, where his research helped secure the bank's first internal funding for hydrogen and fuel research. Subsequently, Chris became an advisor to colleagues within the World Bank and IFC on hydrogen and fuel cell projects. Chris founded Proteum in 2019. They build, own, operate and finance green hydrogen and renewable energy infrastructure assets and from those provide hydrogen as an energy service company to customers. The company's mission is to power businesses with sun, wind and water. We talk about the role of hydrogen in the race to net zero, its use cases, the economic model for rolling it out more widely and the need to educate on its potential. Chris explains to us, grassroots up, how hydrogen has a critical role to play in the energy mix and articulates some of the challenges in accelerating its progress requiring convergence of policy, capital and private enterprise. Chris, welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Stephanie Glover and I are absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to speak with you about hydrogen and the hydrogen economy. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here and uh, likewise, really good fun to be on someone else's podcast and uh, really exciting to learn a little bit about, well, to share a little bit about hydrogen, I guess, and uh, learn what people are interested in on this side of the table, not just the hydrogen side of the table. Great. Well, let's let's get started. So we normally like to start these uh, podcasts, Chris, with a question about you and your career trajectory to date. So could you give us an overview of, of your career to date? <laughs> That's quite a brave question. Um, so I, I don't think there was much of a strategy to it. Um, so I uh, so I graduated undergrad 2012, um, which was not the world's best labour market. And for my sins, ended up working in uh, energy and shipping on the insurance broken side in London. That's where I started life. Um, I wanted to do something with politics and business. And so energy is, was sort of the perfect home for that. Uh, and then actually you sort of work my way up to being head of business development for a team of about 150 people turning over 50 million of revenue. And it was quite interesting because we did stuff from wave and tidal in Orkney all the way through to wind derivative products for onshore wind farms through to, you know, offshore wind, but also oil and gas for large producers and small globally. So it was a really good learning bed. And then did some international business with the deputy CEO um, of the company and then much to my dad's horror, I decided really didn't want to do insurance and decided I would try and uh, retrain. So did a year in venture and then went to Science Johns Hopkins, studying energy finance and economics, um, did some work with the Asian Development Bank, did some work in South Africa and Canada, um, and then ended up at the World Bank, um, where I was basically their uh, renewable energy consultant for SG7 initially, and then did some consulting advisory work with the Saudi UAE governments on clean energy strategy, and ultimately, um, actually ended up starting the green hydrogen research work at the World Bank. So led their first green hydrogen paper, led their initial outreach bridge between the World Bank and IFC. And when I got impatient and fed up with all of that, came back to the UK and launched Proteum, which is the business that I currently am the CEO and founder of. 
which is a UK-based green hydrogen energy company. Could you tell us a little bit more about Protean then before we get into a broader discussion on hydrogen? Sure. So uh, Protean is, as I said, is a UK-based green hydrogen energy company. We were founded in July 2019. Uh, company is now 35 employees, um, which has been quite exciting, going from three in January 20 to 35 um, during COVID. Um, the focus of the business is to support the carbonization of consumer industrials predominantly, um, but also other hard-to-abate um, energy users. And we focus predominantly on heat and transport for those uh, end users. And really, the idea that we have on Protein is we're not trying to create new technology. What we're trying to do is take existing technical solutions in the market and package it in a commercially and technically viable structure that effectively allows businesses to access the net zero uh, solutions that they need to get away from diesel or from coal or from natural gas without having to take technology risk or financing risk on the balance sheet. And we do that by building dedicated renewable energy infrastructure assets, which we then fund through long-term patient capital. And we then work with clients to negotiate um, multi-year offtake agreements. Um, and we provide a series of services alongside those offtake agreements. And that package we call a HESCO or a hydrogen energy services company. And so effectively, we then build this portfolio of dedicated distributed renewable assets, which includes solar, wind, batteries, and green hydrogen production from a technology called electrolysis, electrolyzers. And that, in our view, is how we can then materially support the decarbonization of UK industry and help to build the backbone of a green hydrogen ecosystem that will support the UK and hopefully other countries transition to net zero. Right. Well, it sounds like you're right in the heart of solution development and how hydrogen is being used in the race to sort of net zero. So perhaps if we take a step back, this is a really good place for us to start, because I thought I'd ask you if you could share your views on the role of hydrogen as an energy source in the, in the race to zero and the energy transition. A number of countries have hydrogen strategies now, not least um, the EU. But the specific steps as to how that strategy is implemented is, is not entirely clear. So it'd be really good to understand your views on how we develop this hydrogen economy and the suite of options that are available to us to build viable investable business models. Sure. Um, so one thing I do do, and, and you can tell me off if uh, I'm doing this the wrong way, but I, I like to step back and put some context when I talk about hydrogen, because what I think everyone really struggles with is the sheer scale of energy yeah. and the sheer scale of the transition ahead of us. So just to put some context around that. So the global energy market invests 1.5 trillion annually. Mm -hmm. And the latest UN numbers are that we need to invest near a 5 trillion annually between now and 2030 to be on track to hit net zero. Um, to give another way of thinking about some of the scale of the energy transition, it took 120 years from Edison's discovery of electricity and the first commercial power grids in York for electricity to go from 0% of global energy to 20%. And again, that's important to emphasize, only 20% of all the energy consumed in the world today is electricity, and the other 80% is in transport and heat. Mm -hmm. So when I come into the context of hydrogen, what I'm always trying to get people to think about is we are trying to perform the fastest energy sector transition in known economic history. Okay. And we are going to need every single technology that we have today and many that we haven't developed yet to get there. We're going to need to look at efficiency at a system level. And we're going to also need to look at what is the most optimal solution at a local level that is going to be not only inclusive of the requirements for people locally who are affected by infrastructure that we're going to build, but also that reflects the fact that there are constraints on the resources that we have globally, and that what might make the most sense in one particular application when looked at in a very specific way doesn't work globally. So hydrogen is not a silver bullet. Hydrogen is one technology amongst many that is going to play a key role in the transition. So then the question is, what role exactly is that? Yeah. So my philosophy of looking at hydrogen is trying to say, Hydrogen is often compared to a Swiss army knife, right? I.e. it can do lots of different things. But you wouldn't usually use a Swiss army knife to do lots of things, you know, because just because you can open a bottle of wine doesn't mean you will. So what really matters is where does it add the most value to a business? So we think that there are a number of businesses today, consumer industrial, people like Unilever, Nestle, Budweiser, Remy Cointreau are great examples, but there are others 
who said, we want to be net zero as fast as possible. Well, how, how do you do that? It's very hard to electrify all heavy transport requirements today. We don't have technology, frankly. Lithium-ion is not good enough to decarbonize a 44-ton truck and do the sort of operations we need. You can't electrify all thermal heat requirements for glass manufacturing for even a number of boiler burner operations today, uh, direct heat and indirect heat. So, But you can do that with hydrogen. So there are ways of actually taking solar, wind, and other renewables and using that to split water and effectively transfer those green electrons into green molecules. And so hydrogen's role in many ways that we see it is facilitating that transition for companies that want to move faster, where there aren't technical solutions available today, and also in actually helping to couple different parts of the energy system together so that when we're producing too much sun or wind, mm-hmm. rather than having to store that in expensive batteries and take up large amounts of land, we can actually store that in a much more compact and efficient way. Mm-hmm. We can also transfer it across different parts of the energy sector. So instead of me having to use an electron the minute it's created or stored in the battery, mm-hmm. I can create it into a green fuel that can be used for heating, could be used for power generation again, could be used for transport, could be used for chemical process. That flexibility is ultimately going to be a key part of how we help to integrate all the new solar and wind coming online every single year and how we also ensure that we're not reliant simply on one solution to decarbonize these hydrogen-based sectors. So at the macro level, that's how I think about it. And we can obviously pick apart aspects of that as we go through this discussion. Could you give an overview on the different types of hydrogen and the various colours of hydrogen? Because, again, understanding the provenance of how hydrogen is made is critical is isn't it to its its end use and its acceptability or social acceptability if you like people are very familiar i'm sure with brown gray blue green but there are other colors as well not least turquoise and pink so perhaps you could give an overview of the the rainbow uh, of hydrogen production so maybe as as an obvious point the, the global energy system is using hydrogen the problem is it's combined with carbon Right. I mean, the hydrocarbons is the backbone of the modern energy system, coal, petrol, diesel, natural gas. Right. So the question then really, whenever we're thinking about hydrogen as a fuel is, is there still a high, a carbon element associated with that hydrogen that we're using? Or is there a way of getting that hydrogen without a carbon element? So um, there is then two different ways of thinking about this. And there are two different. One is a labeling by a color system, which is meant to reflect the providence of the production method. And the other is just to say how you produce this is relevant. What matters is what is the greenhouse gas intensity of every kilo produced. So typically governments take the latter approach and they say, right, you are either low carbon hydrogen or you are full fat hydrogen, if you like. And they look at what the greenhouse gas emissions associated with that are. And that's what the UK government and the EU have done. But most businesses and NGOs prefer to use the terminology of colours. Um, And so green hydrogen is typically referred to um, where you use renewable energy to split water, a process called electrolysis, into hydrogen and oxygen. And I think the reason why that has stuck as a very powerful label is because it's very simple for people to understand. People understand that if you're using a renewable power resource and you're separating water, there is no carbon in the process of production. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's green. Right. So that's that's green. Then you have, as you say, grey, black, brown, which depending on who you ask, which country, which age, and it sounds silly, but really it is often a combination of those things, essentially amounts to existing uh, extraction of hydrogen from fossils, notably natural gas, and in some markets like China from coal, where there is no attempt to capture the carbon, and therefore it is full-fat hydrogen, if you like, with all of the negative CO2 emissions, and it's important to emphasize that market today emits 830 million tons of CO2 a year. It's between 2 to 4% of all global emissions are in producing hydrogen from fossil fuels. So then that moves into the final category. And these are technologies or attempts to continue to use fossil fuels that are abundant and that we've developed over the last 200 years, very efficient ways of extracting, but to try and capture that carbon so that you can limit the environmental impact of using that fuel source. So blue hydrogen is the most common term for that. That's where we try and effectively extract carbon from natural gas and then sequester that, um, usually in um, deep underground storage, but 
could also be used for another industrial process. Uh, then you end up with colors like turquoise and various other shades of hydrogen, where essentially you're using a technology called pyrolysis in many instances. There are other synthetic hydrogen extraction methods, but by and large, the idea is that you can create a solid carbon compound as opposed to carbon as a gas. And because it's a solid, that is easier to treat. And there's a higher chance of capturing all of the carbon associated with the fossil you've extracted it from. And therefore, there is less of a negative environmental impact. And sometimes that carbon might even be quite a valuable product. And so that then is an argument people will make to say, you can continue to use natural gas because you have this valuable carbon in a form that you need it. And you have hydrogen that doesn't have any carbon associated with it. So that's in the round. And yellow is nuclear because some people don't think that nuclear counts as low carbon. So depending on who you ask, it's green or, or yellow. Chris, that is so interesting. And I'm really kind of grateful for you to put all those really complicated terminology as, as simply as possible. I think that breaking down the scale of the challenge and looking at you know the great electricity and energy transition that we need is, is really, really interesting. And I think I was familiar with about two of eight of the colours there, and I'm pretty involved in you know, the sustainability and transition space. Um, but from the finance side, um, I think people generally understand how things like wind and solar work. It's much easier to, to see the wind farm and see where the energy comes from. Do you think people understand this level of detail around hydrogen? And do you think we need more education about it? I don't think they understand it at all. Most surveys suggest they don't understand it. Most people also don't realize that they have probably come across hydrogen. Any, anyone who would have lived at the time in the 1970s on the gas grid would have had 50% of all their heating in the UK done via hydrogen. Many people who traveled to countries like Singapore or Hong Kong would not have noticed that hydrogens often blend in the gas grid in a number of these markets. So general awareness is very low. People often who took the bus from, I think it was uh, the Tower, Tower of London Bridge for 10 years also may have been taking a hydrogen bus without realizing it. So in general, I think awareness is low. I think the color question, which you're very right to flag, um, is partly why industry and NGOs like to use colors and governments like to use metrics of GHG intensity. Because from a consumer engagement perspective, it's too complicated to ask anyone to understand what is the true GHG emissions of the fuel. Frankly, um, you could say that most consumers don't even know what their true battery electric vehicle emission profile actually is because they buy a green tariff, but if they're charging during the middle of the day, it's unlikely that they're measuring what their localized GHGs are from that particular point where they're charging. So branding then becomes important. And I think we're a green hydrogen energy company, my business. And uh, you know, I actually stepped down from a trade association that promoted both blue and green because I found it quite difficult to stand in front of people and make the case for blue hydrogen. Um, and I think branding helps for consumers because of simplicity. As you rightly point out, people know what a solar and wind farm, solar farm or wind farm does. And to me, saying I take sun and wind, I split water, and I can replace diesel, natural gas, and coal is a very clear, easy to understand message for investors, for consumers, for residents, and people living nearby, and policymakers. Explaining, well, I take natural gas, it's a bit from the UK, a bit from Russia, a bit from LNG. I capture some of it using this technology you've not heard of. I put some of it under the North Sea. I hope it stays there for 50 years, and that's zero carbon is quite complicated. It's complicated even within industry to explain. Um, and that's where the labels of colors, um, I think, are very helpful at a high level to help people to understand what we're talking about, albeit they're not as sophisticated for industrial buyers or, or people taking that really macro level view on, on how we get to net zero. And does, doesn't it um, create some tension in the investment landscape? Because if we think about the type of hydrogen that we might encourage uh, governments to support and investors to invest in, it will link to um, energy policy within you know, different nations. Some nations support nuclear, some nations don't, etc. And if we think about the implementation of energy transition plans, we're clearly trying to direct capital away from carbon. So when we're looking at long-term investment horizons for the build of relevant infrastructure, with the production and distribution of hydrogen, how do we settle on the right technologies to support over the long term? Because the decisions that are made now will impact that direction of travel. And sometimes there is debate, isn't there, about locking in to certain infrastructure decisions now that support the rollout of this technology. What are your views there? 
The challenge is that we're trying to force a market transition faster than perhaps the market would naturally move. And so the question then is, there is an additional risk being taken by people who are making that transition now as opposed to waiting. And the wider macro question is, where does that additional risk and who, who, who should be taking that additional risk? Should it be governments or should it be investors or should it be the private sector? And, and what is the right balance on that? So my view is that the job of industry is to demonstrate why in transitioning to new, new technologies, you're able to deliver actually a better value proposition, not simply repeating exactly the same provision of service you get today and paying a cost premium for that to tick a box. And I think that's where some of these technologies, uh, the conversations can be quite limited because if I say, all I want to do is replace your existing fuel with another, you're not actually saying, well, how do I make your existing process more efficient? How could I actually integrate your process with other processes so that there are synergies and other environmental benefits that I can bring together? So like for like fuel switching without thinking about how you can use the fact that it is a different technology to deliver different outcomes is not a good way of approaching the problem. And that's sometimes where I feel the private sector does the government a disservice because the government doesn't know it needs the private sector to go and talk to end users and figure out what they can do with end users with the new technologies available to deliver a better solution and then come back to government and say, this is what we could do. This is why it's better. Here is a clear ask from us to help bridge that risk adjusted gap. Um, so I think that's what we need to do as an industry more. I'm not sure we always do it as well as we could do. And I think that's where... Uh, my view, as frustrating as it is for some people, is that you should start with green hydrogen projects that perhaps are a little bit smaller than where people might want to be. So projects anywhere between kind of the 20 to 200 million or 250 million capex, as opposed to going straight to half a billion or a billion or two billion. And I think the finance community has been very excited about hydrogen because they can see these big multi-billion projects and it's easier for them to get their arms around in the way that they get their arms around traditional CCGT or large offshore wind or large nuclear. But there isn't a lot of technical expertise. This is a young sector. There's a lot of learning to happen from the engineer side, from the health and safety executive sides, the lawyers, you know, and actually there is a learning curve there. And I think government needs to be helping that. And I think the private sector and investors need to be mindful of that. But I think by doing these smaller projects, we also learn. The government actually quite often has good strategies. So the Bayes 2018 strategy said we should fund 20 industrial uh, sites across the UK to be running on hydrogen by 2025. So that by 2025, we can take a view as a country, does hydrogen provide a meaningful and effective way of decarbonizing heat? and replacing natural gas, fuel, oil, and coal. And then in 2025, you've got 20 biomass pilots through the RHI, 20 hydrogen pilots through a new mechanism, and 20 that you've electrified. And you can look across that sample set, and you can help industry with government to form a view. But you have to do that. So I think that's how I've approached it. I think it doesn't necessarily chime with where people want to go. But once you get those first successes and you can demonstrate the value, it's much easier to scale up. And I'm worried that we are maybe going too big too soon and backing some horses that will lock us in the wrong way. And the big blue hydrogen clusters are my big worry that that is going to be a massive white elephant. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting approach, isn't it? It's a very innovation led approach, which which I like, and and that innovation led approach that's forcing convergence around policy because you're learning from you know the the, the success of where. The innovation is relevant in the market, attracting capital as well, but also highlighting risk. It is quite a nice approach. I mean, you mentioned the the scalability and the, I guess, the speed to solutions uh, as well as part of this. Will that get us there quick enough? Do we need a blend of the bigger projects alongside innovation at a smaller scale? So one of the early investors in Proteum was a French gentleman called Pascal Pinnacle. Um, he became the CEO of a French company called Tenergy. And uh, we often compare notes. And I uh, said, what was your first project you ever did, Pascal? And he said, oh, we did a 50 kilowatt rooftop uh, um, PV project. And this is from a guy who in seven years built a one gigawatt solar PV project uh, portfolio. So, you know, first project, 75 kilowatts, seven years later had done a gigawatt. 
And I said to him, you know, why didn't you do bigger projects when you started? And he said, well, everyone who ran at the beginning to do the bigger projects didn't learn from the smaller projects. They didn't understand the economics, the operational issues, the challenges. But we did because we built one and we could show everyone and we understood it and we got it. Um, I think you only have to look at actually how effective the early feed-in tariffs were to realize that when industry has a very clear incentive from the market, whether that's nudged by the government or not, it can move extraordinarily quickly. I mean, the UK put 28 gigawatts of solar and onshore wind into development in a period of 10 years as a result of very clear market steering guidance. You know, Europe and the rest of the world put hundreds of gigawatts of projects into development and went from maybe less than 30 billion a year into renewables to 300 billion in a decade with clear government guidance and policies. So scaling up is not an issue where people know what the technology can and can't do. They understand how to develop and install it safely and reliably, and they understand how to finance it. But if we don't get that right at the beginning, mm. and even worse, we do it in a way that's dangerous or that is not reliable, so the customer experience is poor and public perception of the technology is poor, we don't get a second chance, certainly not in the time frame we need to do this again. But we need a government signal then, therefore, if we look at your uh, PV example, where there were generous subsidies in the early days of the rollout of PV through the feed-in tariff, what further governmental incentivization, support, subsidies, public-private, blended finance initiatives do you think we need then to help support the, the investment into hydrogen it's a great question, and it's one I struggle a little bit with because, in many senses, the thinking around ESG and climate was so early when a lot of the price support started for solar and wind. And so the market really wasn't unequivocally demanding these solutions. It was government pushing industry to and, and essentially the private sector to move. Um, if you look today, there's actually quite a large market now for unsubsidized solar and wind projects, which are just done through corporate PPAs. And so I do wonder whether the market being different today and there being so much more consumer demand for green fuels and green energy, you would need the same scale of price support. And I think you probably don't. But what I think you do need is some way of getting past that first mover disadvantage. You know, we are at the start of this cost decline curve. And what we don't want to see is that those businesses at the beginning who are effectively, they will be taking risks because things will go wrong. And the learnings from that will inform the rest of the sector so that everyone can build better projects, more reliable projects, more efficient projects. Some of the benefits and learnings that those first movers will be generating for the economy, there should be a mechanism for de-risking that for them and reflecting the value that they're adding to the economy. And whether that's through a price support or a grant in the early phase for a few projects, I'm quite open to mechanisms. I think what the UK government's proposed at the moment is a very good start and i think a lot of countries in the world who are looking at what they should do could learn a lot from that i don't think it needs to be in the tens or hundreds of billions as some people have advocated but i think you know as a start for 10 just giving that early confidence to get some of those first few projects of an interesting scale off the ground will make a material difference and then my final observation would be on carbon pricing because we had a number of mps come and speak to us about this recently and say if we had a good carbon border adjustment price a clear UK ETS that was cross-sectoral and there was a pathway to increases, would we need to introduce price support? And our response was essentially, you know, as Proteum, if investors genuinely believe and end users genuinely believe that carbon prices are coming, they are unavoidable, they're not going to go down. And unlike fuel duty, you're not going to cut it or suspend it politically because it's painful, then actually price support doesn't become as relevant. And I think for hydrogen as well as for battery electric, for heat pumps and other technologies, that is the key to unlocking a lot of this, is just convincing the final holdout there is nowhere else to go. They are going to have to move, and the sooner they move, the better. Can we kind of take a step back and talk about what carbon pricing is and, and the history of carbon pricing and where, where we're currently at and why we're expected it to grow so much? I mean, look, I mean, so, so insofar as, you know, we think about carbon pricing, carbon pricing is simply a mechanism to account for the most obvious externality of the way that we currently use fossil fuels. Mm. I emphasize one, because actually there are lots of negative externalities from fossil fuels that we don't talk about even, well, we don't tax, sorry, I should say, but we are aware of, for example, air quality. 
tens of thousands of people die every single year because of the fact that we continue to use fossil fuels and we don't ask consumers to pay an additional premium for that fact. So, you know, there are other externalities. Carbon pricing, though, is the one that we've decided is the easiest. Um, and really what we're trying to do there is create an objective framework to say there are negative consequences from using these fuels and we need a redress mechanism to help incentivize people to move away from the usage of those fuels. Now, whether that's done by creating a certain number of free credits, which is what the EU and the UK initially did, which was to say, if you emit 100 units of CO2, then this year I give you credits worth 100. And if you don't use all of them, you can sell some of them back to people that use more. So that creates a financial incentive for you to reduce what you're using. And then the next year, instead of you getting 100 credits, maybe you get 95 credits. If you're still emitting 100, you're now paying a tax. That's how that started. Other sectors just impose a flat tax and say there's no credits, there's just a flat tax. But what then happens is that money is a tax that goes back to government. And in Canada, for example, then there's a central pot of money and the Canadian government can go right. We're now going to run an innovation competition for those same businesses to apply for money to decarbonize their operations. So instead of them having to go and ask their finance director for money, they can go to the government, apply for a grant and get it. Or instead of that very poor um, consumer at home paying higher bills and going, I can't afford to choose between food or heating my home, the central government can go, right, I'm going to target you with specific support to help you through a carbon tax on those who are richer and redistribute some of that cost back down. So there's different ways and approaches of using it, but you're really trying to capture the same thing. How do you install a fair, objective measure of the climate impact that we are having from the fuels we're using? And how do you force a transition through that market mechanism? I guess what we hope is that we properly price carbon, as you're saying, mm -hmm. uh, and then it gets embedded into investment decision making across sectors. Then it will direct capital towards hydrogen and other technologies that are seeking to address um, the net zero challenge. It, it is. I mean, one thing I would emphasize is, though, it's still very inconsistent in the way that people think about carbon and carbon pricing. And I think this is a conversation that more broadly within ESG um, it needs to be thought of, which is in the UK versus the US versus France versus Japan, every single country's government will put out a different estimation of what they think the industry carbon price should be each year. So if you are a global, global multinational, the assumption set that your regional or local teams might have compared to headquarters could be quite different. So there is quite a profound challenge then when a business might have a global CO2 price, for example, 40 euros a ton, but actually in some markets like the UK, it might be 60 pounds a ton. And in others like Sweden, it might be 100 pounds a ton. And in others like South Africa, it might not be there or might be $10 a ton, for example. Um, how do you then reconcile that and think about that? It's a, it's a challenge. And, and equally for investors managing a portfolio, how do you think about a case where in the energy sector, we're very aware of CO2, it's very much on the radar. But I was at a CBRE event on ESG a couple of weeks ago and in the property sector talking about the idea of a $25 a tonne of CO2 assessment for building construction and emissions associated with building construction was still quite a new concept actually it still was not there at all in the same way of thinking so it, it isn't cross-sectoral it's not consistent and i think that means that even though in the back of people's minds we think we understand what co2 pricing means mm. actually putting it into an objective clear framework that both the private sector government and investors can engage with is still a long way away yeah well therein lies the challenge for bill winters and the voluntary carbon market uh, <laughs> initiative you know, obviously that's that's moving alongside all of this. <laughs> so we need it all to converge uh, around a, a single consistent framework. I just wanted to move on, if we could, to some of the use cases for hydrogen and within your network and, I guess, Protean's experience in terms of what it's doing, some of the technological challenges that you're seeing across heat, transport, electrification of things. So when we look at some of the end uses, what are the technological challenges that we needed to combat in order to deploy hydrogen across a number of those use cases in a meaningful way? Sure. So maybe I'll help. I'll, I'll, I can talk about two projects we're doing. 
And then we can kind of pull from there. So two projects that we've announced publicly, one is with Budweiser Brewing Group at their brewery in Maygore, South Wales. It's the UK's largest or joint largest brewery and produces about 8% of UK beer. So 58-acre industrial estate, um, major local employer and requires power for bottling and general operations, requires heating for the brewing process and cleaning and process operations, LPG for forklifts that operate on the site, moving various different products um, and raw materials across the site, and then heavy good vehicles that bring ingredients and finished products to and from the site. So a whole variety and blend of different energy requirements. Many food and drink businesses, including Budweiser, have thermal power demands that are multiples of their electric demand. So actually, when we talk about electrifying heat, it's not simply the case that often, you know, you can just add into the grid and it's quick to go. It actually requires quite material and significant increases in grid availability in that particular area, some of which is not always available because you simply can't build it. It requires much broader upgrades to that regional network to be able to sustain that but also requires public consent. Often massive grid upgrade works requires a lot of new transmission lines, new substations, very disruptive. And again, the local pipelines, presumably. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's transmission rather than pipelines for electricity, it's different. And I think that is part of the appeal that we see. So our project with Budweiser is developing local solar and wind mm-hmm. where we can take that power directly behind the meter. So we don't yeah. need to connect it to the grid. We don't need to deal with a lot of the integration challenges, which is a huge yeah issue for new developing solar and wind. Um, But what we can also then do is we can actually provide certain services to the grid. So where we are in Wales is actually a corridor that connects into England. And a lot of new wind is coming into the middle of Wales, but most of the demand is in the east of England. So we can actually provide a flexible demand source so that when there's too much power on the grid, but not enough demand, we can actually help to manage some of that additional load by having an electrolyzer that's connected to the grid and our own renewables that are off grid and using water that the brewery itself actually uh, uses for the brewing process, demineralized water, we can then uh, effectively provide power from our own renewables, but then split their own demineralized water into hydrogen oxygen and use that hydrogen for their vehicle operations, their heavy good vehicles, their forklifts, but also for replacing some of the natural gas in their boilers. So really nice integrated project that actually mm-hmm. helps to provide a genuine pathway to net zero for a major company. And Budweiser has a 2026 net zero target in the UK. Um, And we're doing a similar project with Corn and Northeast. So if you want limitations then, the challenges that we've seen is that first, the HSE and planning authorities are not used to the idea of having gas production facilities nearby. We saw some of this with anaerobic digestion in the biogas space. There is a learning process whenever you're creating a gas in what often is a rural or is at least not a chemicals area. So there's a training process with that. And storing of gas also requires a lot more familiarity locally of what are the risks associated with that gas. So hydrogen is more flammable, but it's not toxic as a gas. Mm-hmm. It's also harder to detect, but it's also more likely to, you know, you'll either have an immediate event or it will vent very quickly into atmosphere. So that training awareness is just very low across the base. And that's a technological challenge insofar as you have to find, you often end up putting in place mechanisms that might not be the best ones long term, but they give comfort to people whose knowledge level is very low today. And so that adds capex um, and it gets people comfortable, but it's not potentially the right one longer term. The other issue then is maintenance. There are not that many water electrolysis, and I emphasize water as opposed to chloroalkaline, which we've used a lot of. There are not that many large-scale water electrolysis facilities in operation today. So a lot of maintenance schedules, a lot of planned outages, um, and just frankly, making sure the systems run as envisaged, we're still learning from. There are established companies in this market like Seems Energy, but they are putting in their first large systems. There's businesses like Hydrogenics who put in a few large systems in ITM, but they are early stage. So there will be learnings from that. There are already been a number of issues with early stage systems where the water is wrong, the filtration system breaks, something happens with um, the dehumidifying technologies that are required to strip water out of hydrogen. The teeth issues, but they're important. Um, and then integration, and I wouldn't emphasize how hard this is, the electrical interconnection between your own renewables, solar and wind, any grid-related power you're taking, mm-hmm. power that goes through the electrolyzer, and potentially a battery as well. Mm-hmm. And actually getting all of that right and doing it in a safe way, where the last thing you want is sparks around a flammable gas, 
is not trivial. And so there is a huge amount here, I would say, in the hydrogen space of just technical upskilling that needs to happen, as opposed to necessarily finding a lot of the raw ingredients. Um, the one exception is possibly transport, where fuel cells as a technology are not new. They've been around since the 1950s, and they're used in most nuclear submarines with electrolyzers. So that they are there. But integration of those into electric vehicle drivetrains with compressed storage is still relatively new. Hydrogen aviation is very, very young. We've only really started getting used to the first hydrogen trains in Europe and hopefully will be in North America soon. And while we've had lots of hydrogen buses, hydrogen HGVs are still relatively new. Um, and there are huge benefits to them. And the ATI put out a great paper on, on why, actually, from the life cycle CO2, they are one of the most attractive technologies for businesses. But there will be errors, as we've seen with the early battery electric and with some of the early CNG. And investors just need to be patient with that, which is easy to say, hard to do. I mean, you talk about upskilling there. What type of um, upskilling do you think that we need? Is is it kind of engineers going out and getting new degrees? Is it people moving into more STEM subjects? Or, or is it finance learning more about hydrogen and the basics of investments? What, what kind of upskilling do you think we need? All of the above, but maybe being more helpful specifically. Quite a lot of engineers who have um, gas handling experience don't necessarily have electrical engineering experience and vice versa. And it's quite hard to find people with a crossover of those skill sets, but we need them. Ironically, one area that does have that skill set quite often is the oil and gas industry, which is why actually hydrogen is a very good energy sector transition story in so many ways. Because I think something we take for granted in these discussions is that if we do not have the goodwill of the broader public in making these transitions, then they will fail. Because whether we like it or not, there will be certain costs involved in the transition, and they might not be purely economic. They may also be social costs. They may be land use change costs um, and behavioral changes that impose different costs on people and society. So finding ways to bring people with us is hugely important. And the oil and gas sector, being able to retrain those workers who know how to handle gases in difficult environments and who have some electrical knowledge is very valuable because a lot of the solar and wind industry today don't have any of that expertise of being able to handle gases and all of the biogas AD space also don't have that familiarity necessarily of uh, yeah, how do you think about battery integration and optimization alongside solar and wind and how do you manage that with the grid and the clients in real time? These are not easy things to do. Um, and maybe a final one to consider, a lot of the early projects in the space require real-time adjustment of supply of the product, which in this case is hydrogen, with client demand. Matching supply and demand is actually not easy to do in real time across multiple projects and assets. Um, we take for granted that we've got massive fuel depots and pipelines and storage all across countries in the world today. And people who've worked in the renewable space take it for granted that you have this thing called the grid and you put your power into the grid and someone else figures out what to do with it. But you can't do that, actually, as you move to a more and more distributed energy system where we are trying to replace fuels and we need a more flexible demand system. The supply side has to become more sophisticated. And that is going to be a massive challenge for engineers to have to think and integrate with plant operations, with varying fluctuations intraday, intra-half hour, weekly, monthly. And investors need to understand that too. The predictable cash flow profile of my solar has a P50 that looks like this. Weather does this, therefore my revenue is X. It is much more difficult where actually demand is variable. And you may need to say one year, these few months might be bad because there's an unplanned outage here or this operator's trucks aren't running the way we expected them to. But then you make it back up at the end of the year. And it's just that understanding of flexibility in the financing side that I think is going to be new as well. And people just need to understand that. and through understanding it, they'll be better able to model it and manage the risk around it. Proteum is developing a lot of intellectual property, if you like, through having to face and solve some of these challenges around use cases, coupling of different energy sources and grid connections, as you've alluded to, and various other challenges and solution development. There's been a lot of focus on sharing knowledge and collaborating in the race to zero. How do you strike that balance between a really innovative business like yours that is solving these problems and has invested in doing so, but also recognising that others can learn from you 
It's a really good question. It's not one that I think we get perfectly right. I think we're always learning and I hope that we continue to learn. I think you have to find partners where there's a natural complementary fit. So, for example, um, I spoke about the challenge of matching supply and demand. And so one way we've been trying to learn to do that is through building a digital twin. And so we had some funding from the government um, and we put in some of our own capital to work with Siemens PSE. Siemens PSE is a leader in digital uh, twins, but the challenge they have is actually needing to know the parameters so they can build the, the, the you know, fundamentally the software they can provide and it's very sophisticated, but they actually need someone to help them think about what does it mean in real time and what are the you know, limitations that are not software limitations, but are the parameters of modeling. And so our interaction with them has been because we're building the projects and they're providing software, it's a really nice natural partnership. And as a result of which, they learn and think about ways to improve and cross-sell their product. But we actually then are able to plug into a very powerful piece of equipment and add our own IP to it that makes our projects better and allows us to deliver smarter outcomes to our clients. So it's trying to find win-win areas like that that makes a huge difference in this market. And some sectors are easier than others, being honest. Um, but that doesn't mean we should stop trying. That's a great example. And thank you for sharing that. Um, Steph, I'm going to hand over to you for our last uh, question. It's been such an interesting podcast. I wonder if I could be cheeky and have two last questions. Go ahead and take and decide which one survives. <laughs> so um, so I, I live on a small island in uh, Guernsey, and we're currently looking at our net zero action plan. And it seems to me we're, we're an island. We have a huge opportunity to generate renewable energy. We talked a lot about how you can scale up energy and hydrogen, um, but can it also be scaled down and useful for smaller nations or even for developing nations? This is a really good question. Um, island communities are definitely an area where hydrogen has been a keen focus. Um, you know, pretty much chief commercial officers based in the Orkney Islands. The Orkney Islands have been a pioneer in the use of hydrogen to help integrate variable renewables that they have up there from wave, tidal and onshore wind. So yes, it can be. Um, we're also working in Ida with a whiskey distillery looking at, at how that can work. And there are a number of people looking across the Caribbean and other island states to think about how, how we can work these technologies together. Um, the developing world as well is definitely an area where I personally think we have to be talking about in the context of the energy transition. So if we don't get that right, then we're wasting our time. The focus of the work I did at the World Bank was green hydrogen developing countries. And one of the big challenges you notice there is that the grids are very weak. And so actually, while you might have brilliant solar and wind availability or hydro or other renewables, converting that into a usable energy source and being able to store it is really difficult. So I think green hydrogen has a massive role to play within that. Um, you have to find the easy wins. And that perhaps is the bit where sometimes we've let people down. So a few easy wins that I've sort of been looking at with people, I think off-grid, um, places that are already naturally off-grid are a really good place to focus on. So you may have heard of the Earthshot Prize, and there was a company there called Anapta. Anapta built modular green hydrogen electrolyzer systems. Um, they actually have used them with uh, solar PV and batteries to build an off-grid home in Thailand called the Five Sway House. That's actually how the company originally started. And they've actually used that now in several different countries to demonstrate how you can basically take residential properties off-grid entirely using green hydrogen and other renewables. There was even a house in Cornwall called the Autarkic House that was going to use the same approach and principle. But you can then take that also to mining and other industrial operations that are also remote areas. And these are important because they tend to be some of the worst polluters. The mining industry is a huge user of diesel, as is shipping in island nations. And so if you can get people off diesel backup power generators, and if you can switch heavy transport from diesel to a green fuel, you're going to make a huge dent in CO2 emissions. The challenge for islands is what can you produce domestically versus what do you need to bring in? And that's where it's a context by context question, um, and not an easy one, but one that we should engage with. And, and I don't think people probably are doing enough on that. That's really great and definitely kind of resonates, I think, with what we're seeing on island of that, what do we need to import and what can we produce? Um, so my, my very cheeky last, last question was um, at the beginning of the podcast, you spoke so kind of clearly around breaking down the scale of the challenge. If you had a megaphone in the sky, what would be the kind of one message that you'd like the kind of the world to understand about the scale of the challenge and, and how you'd like um, to kind of communicate with the world? 
um, do everything faster and keep doing it. <laughs> and it sounds really stupid, um, but we have some arguments on um, you know various forms of social media platforms, various platforms, conferences, um, peer review journals that are just unbelievably stupid. I mean, someone saying, well, I could, you know, I could use biomethane for this. So why am I electrifying it? Why am I using hydrogen for this when I can electrify it? Why am I even talking about electrifying it when I can use energy efficiency? Or why don't I just close this down? You know, these are all very nice academic discussions to have. We have 28 years to hit net zero. We have to peak emissions in eight years. And we have to invest 5 trillion a year from now to 2030. The idea that you can pick and choose and that you're going to get it right is a nonsense. The only way we are going to get even close to the line is if we start saying, right, we know that this technology in front of us today is able to replace and displace fossil fuels. Is it perfect? No, probably not. Can we optimize this later down the line? Yes, we can, right? Because if I want to produce green hydrogen, guess what? I have to build solar, wind, hydro, some form of renewable power somewhere in the system. So if I can build it and find a way to integrate it that doesn't require a new power line or a new transmission and doesn't get held up by that, that is an unequivocally good thing. Because if we decide in 20 years' time we just want to electrify it, we've still built the solar, we've still built the wind, we kicked the coal or gas or diesel off that we were using 20 years ago, we're all in a better place. But deciding or trying to decide what we think is the best answer now, rather than getting on with the technologies that are in front of us, is a recipe for inaction and a determination of failure. And mm -hmm. failure, as I tell everyone in my team, is not an option. We cannot be sitting here still arguing about the same points in 10 years' time. Love it. Love that answer. So let's just get on with it. Uh, Chris, uh, on behalf of Steph and I, thank you so much uh, for your insights today. Really, really fascinating discussion. Definitely wish we had more time. Um, but thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.